This is an article from a US Today, USA Today reporter. He says, there's one scene that repeats itself night after night, mile after mile in this city, Las Vegas, suddenly dotted with memorials. Cheerful people strolling down the strip pass a small patch of candles and flowers and they stop. Their faces tighten, they shuffle forward. Sometimes they glance down the Las Vegas Boulevard toward the hotel where a few days earlier, a man leaned out of broken windows and shot 58 people to death at a concert. Then they move on, bound for the lights of another casino. In those brief moments in between, the solemn stares, the heads slowly shaking, the quiet murmurings, in which the Las Vegas Strip finds itself now almost one week after the deadliest mass shooting in modern American history. Pain has seeped into the infrastructure of this place, hiding in the cracks and showing itself only in small bursts. The casinos are open, but extra security guards wave metal detectors and search random pieces of luggage. The oversized LED screens still make night feel like day. But instead of showing casino ads, they all, they all read Vegas Strong. Bored-looking salespeople still hawk tickets, but demand for theater shows has dropped. People still drink and shout, but then they look all around almost apologetically. They can't explain it to themselves. Dottie Murphy said as she watched a family stare at a makeshift memorial, then scurry around to see the famed Bellagio Fountain Show. They're feeling guilty for having fun because how many people are in the hospital? How many people died for no reason? Laughter is yet to return. People in the city of misconnections are reluctant even to speak to each other, unwilling to stumble across the questions that have all been, they've all been silently asking themselves. Why did this man kill these people? Why here? And how should one properly mourn the dead? in quiet reflection, absorbing the solemnity of the moment or by embracing what had brought them all to Las Vegas in the first place. Nobody seemed to know the answer. The American routine of mass shootings is too uh, new to be fully understood by psychologists and sociologists. Early studies have shown it can take up to 16 months uh, for most people to recover from even mildly traumatic events. But there is no way to know how long it takes a city to heal. That's just a portion of an article from USA Today, and that those thoughts have been repeated by many who are writing in the aftermath of this tragedy. Jesus was approaching the ancient city of Jerusalem when he was alive here on the planet. He was approaching during a major festival of the Jews called the Passover. It actually was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it moved into the Feast of Passover. It included the Feast of First Fruits. And Jesus was going to present himself in this city as the Passover lamb. And the city was stirred. Josephus tells us millions of people perhaps descended on this major holiday for Israel. The marketplace was, was churning with activity. People were you know, exchanging money in the temple courts. They were buying sacrificial animals to receive into their household. But Jesus was coming to pre preach a message that the people largely were not ready to receive. He was going to present himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at the end of that week, he was going to die for the sins of the world. And when he came in, you know, there was a lot of buzz about Jesus. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead. 
There were many people following him. Probably, you know, mixed motives were there. And Jesus made the descent down the Mount of Olives, where you get a beautiful picture of Jerusalem. And as he descended the Mount of Olives, Luke 19, Dr. Luke tells us these words. This is Luke 19, 41. When he approached, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, Luke 19, 42, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace or for shalom, but now, Luke 19, 42, they have been hidden from your eyes. Jesus looked over a city celebrating the Passover, celebrating him, and he wept over the city. Why did he weep? Jesus wept uh, twice in this week at the tomb of Lazarus and over the city of Jerusalem. And we could conjecture all kinds of things, but I think he wept because they did not understand the time of their visitation. Listen, they did not understand the things that make for true peace. And now they had been hidden from their eyes. They did not understand him. In fact, think about it. The city that he was riding into was his city. He was God in human flesh. That is the city in 2 Chronicles 33 that God said, I will write my name in Jerusalem forever. But it was the city that killed the prophets. It was the city that had been ravaged by the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. It was the city where blood has been spilled again and again and again. It has been the city of the Crusades where people with noble intentions went there to save the motherland, to save that from what they uh, saw it as paganism or the wrong people having control over it. And Jesus looked at the city and he wept. And he gave a prophecy in Luke 19. It's not often considered, but this is what he said. The days shall come upon you, and he's predicting the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, when your enemies will... Uh, throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side, will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And he began, he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were selling. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you, you've made it a robber's den and he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. He went into the city. If you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5, the city of God, and there he gave a prophecy which would be fulfilled probably about four decades later. Jesus died around 32, 33 AD. In 70 AD, the city fell to the ground. Roman legions came in there and the city laid in rubble for hundreds and hundreds of years. This is the city of God. You say, a place where God has written his name forever, has experienced these terrible tragedies over and over again? The answer is yes. The question is why? And I think we all deep down know the answer, don't we? The reason is because Israel had rejected God and his ways. And again and again and again, God would allow things to happen in the city to get their attention. He would often use foreign armies as a means of disciplining his own people. And again and again and again, things would happen in the city 
and people would go on with business as usual. And it will happen again. You know, God has written his name on this world. In fact, you belong to him. You've been made in his image. He's written his very law in your heart. But we spend much of our time as humans, let's face it, living apart from him, living separate from him. Our sin separates us from God, the Bible says, but Jesus came to bring us back to God, to bridge the gap back to God. King David, who is a shadow of the coming Messiah, the greater David, has now taken the throne of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 5. All the tribes of Israel came to David. This is 2 Samuel 5, 1 at Hebron, where he had originally set up his headquarters. And they said, behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when King Saul, when Saul was king over us, 2 Samuel 5, 2, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel. You will be ruler, a ruler over Israel. What Israel needed was a shepherd. They had chosen a king that was handsome and tall. His name was Saul. He looked like the right guy for the job, but Saul had a problem. Saul could not obey God. David was a man after what? God's own heart. And God took him from shepherding sheep and brought him to shepherd his people, Israel. He was the unexpected leader, though he was brave and courageous. And David would be the shepherd of God's people. What made David a man after God's own heart? I would say in some ways you have to think about God being a shepherd and David having those shepherd-like qualities. We see the world right now today. Many people running around, they are like sheep without what? A shepherd. The world needs a shepherd and we have a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. His name is Jesus. The question is, will you follow him? He says, my sheep know my voice and they what? They follow me. That's what he wants. He wants us to follow him. All the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, verse three. King David made a covenant with them before the Lord. At Hebron, they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in, notice, in Jerusalem, here's the city of God. And this is the, the mention that will now Jerusalem will really take center stage for the life of Israel from this point forward. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So now you can see Israel and Judah is the 12 tribes coming together, unified under the king, under King David. He's brought unity. They've recognized that he is the rightful king. David is God's shepherd. And they have now made a covenant with him under David. Now the king and his men, 2 Samuel 5, verse 6, went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. Now if you're interested, the name Jerusalem means teaching of peace or founded peaceful. It is the city of peace. When you think of the word Jerusalem, S-A-L-E-M is at the end. The word for peace in Hebrew is the word shalom. So this is the city of peace, the city of God, a city that is supposed to be a place where people find peace, but they had found anything but that for much of the history of Jerusalem. Would you agree? You read some of the history of Jerusalem and you think, man, war after war after war. The city first appears 
in Genesis 14, to my knowledge, or at least reference to it is, is made. And here's what's happening. Abram has just gone after to rescue Lot. And he's gone and defeated some kings led by Chedorlaomer. He was the founder of Cheddar Cheese. Um, no, I'm just kidding. He, he really wasn't. But, and so um, he, he wins the victory with 318 trained men from his household. He rescues Lot, his nephew, brings them back, uh, bring, you know, is, is able to save a lot of people, and, and including somehow the king of Sodom. And in Genesis 14, the king of Sodom meets Abram, I'm sure, in gratitude. He wants to offer Abram some things. And then all of a sudden, this mysterious figure appears. He's written about in the book of Hebrews, and his name is Melchizedek. You remember him? Some people say Melchizedek. Who? His name is Melchizedek. And he's this mysterious king priest. And he's a king priest over an area called the area of Salem. Uh, theologians agree. He's the king priest, an early king priest at the time of Abram over what would become the city of Jerusalem. And you remember what Abram does? He, uh, Melchizedek comes and offers Abram bread and wine, two interesting things that we see later in the ultimate king priest, Jesus at the Last Supper. And Abram gives him a tenth of the spoils. Think with me. Melchizedek is the ruler, king, priest over Jerusalem. And Abram, the father of the Jewish nation, offers him a tithe. Here's a consideration. Do you think the tithe that Abram gave Melchizedek was a sort of down payment for the future headquarters of the nation? Do you think that before Jerusalem ever took center stage in the life of Israel, Abram was in some way giving an offering for the future of what this city would represent to the Jews? Just a thought, but kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? And later on, King David, the man after our God's own heart, would come to this city, to this place called Jerusalem. You will remember that this city also takes on prominence because there's another scene in the book of Genesis where Abraham now, his name's been changed, is told to take his son, his only son, whom he loves, and take him up to a mountain that God would show him. Now, if you've ever studied this passage before, you know that the mountain that God directed Abraham to, along with Isaac, the son of promise, was called Mount Moriah. By the way, Mount Moriah is Jerusalem. In fact, there are those who have studied the archaeology and the history of the land that believe that where Isaac was potentially going to be offered by Abraham because God stopped him is the same spot where 2,000 years later another father gave his son. But this time, that son of promise, the hammer, would come down. He would die for the sins of the world. In this case, God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son. And it said there in Genesis 22, I think it's verse 14, in the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And it was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah who would die for the sins of the world. Isaac is a type of Christ. Abraham is a type of the father who so loved the world that he gave his son. And Isaac name, Isaac's name, interestingly enough, means laughter. And Abraham thought he was going to have to kill his laughter, kill the son of promise, I believe Abraham believed that if he had to kill him, God would raise him from the dead, but God stopped him. And on this mountain, it was said, 
the Lord would provide. It will be provided. And God did provide. He provided the answer to all that, all that hurts our hearts. All of our ills, all of our griefs, all of our sorrows were laid upon him. And David is now going to go to this area. And he's going to relocate his capital to Jerusalem. In the recent history of our own world, the Jews finally recaptured control of Jerusalem. It happened, by the way, in 1967. In 70 AD, the Jews lost control of Jerusalem. They regained it in 1967. I won't ask you for a show of hands, but some of you were born before 1967. So it's happened in your lifetime. Something, by the way, that many people thought would never happen. That Israel now has control of Jerusalem. And President Trump has been talking about moving our embassy to Jerusalem. But you all know there's been a lot of controversy in this area of the world. And I would just tell you, if you're interested in prophecy, keep your eye on Jerusalem. Because it's going to be at the center of the world when the last days unfold. In fact, Jerusalem will become a cup of trembling for all the nations. It will become a burdensome stone. It's always been the center of controversy. But here, David, who is a shadow of the coming Messiah, he goes to Jerusalem. His first official act as king, verse 6, is to go with his men to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. They were the inhabitants of the land. And they said to David, you shall not come in here, but the blind and lame shall turn you away, thinking David cannot enter here. Now, this language is a little bit difficult, but I'll say this to you. Here's what I think is going on. The city of Jerusalem was in many ways an impenetrable city, the way it's up on a mountain and so forth. It was really only accessible from the north. So anybody who was up there at this time, and at this time it was the Jebusites, thought that just because of the topography of the land, any foreign army trying to come in, all they would need is the blind and the lame to stop them. That's, that's kind of how they put it. They weren't putting people down in that sense, but they were just saying, the blind and the lame could defeat you because it's no big deal. The city, is, the city is impenetrable. And so when the Jebusites heard that David was coming up, they said it shouldn't be a problem. They were overconfident. And they thought, ah, it's going to be easy to deal with David and his desires to take this city. And so here's what happens now. And I, I, want, I want to just say to you for a second here before we move on. Uh, as you look at the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, some people look at this and they look at the Bible account and they say, what right does David have to go up and take this spot? Who does he think he is to, you know, the, the Jebusites are there. You could say it's their land. What's he doing going into their land? Everybody turn in your Bibles to Genesis 15. Genesis 15. So this is the chapter where God makes an unconditional covenant with Abram. He's made an incredible promise that he'll have all these descendants, that they will outnumber the stars of the sky, Genesis 15. God cuts the covenant. Uh, it's all based upon God. In fact, Abram's asleep when all of this is taking place. And here's what God says. This is Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, Genesis 15, 18. And he said, to your descendants, I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, this is verse 20, the Perizzite, 
the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Coronite. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's, a, that's the Canaanite. The Girgashite. Everybody mark this. And what? The Jebusite. Now, who was in the land of Jerusalem? The Jebusites. God had made a promise. Get this. Way back when God made this unconditional covenant with Abram, who then would birth Isaac. And then Jacob, and Jacob would be renamed Israel. Early on, he said, look, you've got this land. It's given to your descendants. Look at verse 18, Genesis 15. It's from the river of Egypt as far as the great river Euphrates. And then he names all these people groups that are there. And he says, look, you're going to have all of it, including the area of the Jebusites. Now, another scripture to your right is the book of Exodus, the next book, 23. Exodus 23, Moses has led the children of Israel, out of Egypt. They're going to take the promised land. We all know that that didn't go very well, right? They circled the desert for 40 years and would not obey God. Exodus 23, look at verse 23. God says, my angel, 23, 23, will go before you, bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and who? the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. So David, if you go back to 2 Samuel, now to your right, is going to take this land of Jerusalem. By the way, he's going to do what Israel failed to do. I think if you study the book of Joshua, you will find that The Israelites had some success in this area, but did not fully conquer this area and and really didn't even fully conquer the promised land. And we know why. Because they imbibed the ways of the people. They were enamored with idols and idolatry. They did not fully carry out what God said to do. And God had promised the land. It was the promised land. And by the way, it includes a huge area that's under debate right now. And David goes up. And David's going to do what Israel failed to do in many ways, also typifying Jesus, who does for Israel what they failed to do. He becomes a light to the Gentiles. He's baptized in the Jordan, not for his own sake, but to retrace the fallen footsteps of Israel, to fulfill all righteousness, to die on the cross, to defeat the devil. And David, verse 7, captured the stronghold of Zion, 2 Samuel 5, 7. That is the city of David. This was the city's fortress or citadel. When you see stronghold of Zion there, perhaps the well-fortified city itself. Located on the southeastern ridge of later the city of Jerusalem, it was the ridge overlooking the Kidron Valley. It was originally known as Zion. So you'll notice in verse 7, it calls it the stronghold of Zion. A lot of you have read your Bibles and you, you wonder, What's with Zion and Jerusalem and Mount Zion and all these what seem to be interchangeable names for the same area? It's because the mountain was actually called, or at least a portion of it, was called Zion. You can reference uh, 1 Kings 8.1, the city of David, which is Zion. Zion will become a name that is mentioned often in the Psalms and Prophets. This is partly because the name was taken and applied to the hill on the north side of the city of Solomon's day where the temple was built. Mount Zion came to refer to the Temple Mount or Mount Moriah. 
This is all synonyms for the same area of the world. God always had his eye on this area. This is always a city that was part of his heart that he wanted to set up shop, if you will. And God's promises revolve around Zion. I'm going to take you through just a few Psalms. Go to your right, Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Psalms are in the middle of your Bible, pretty much. Psalm chapter 2. Here's what God says. He's talking about the coming king, and he says in verse 6 of Psalm 2, But as for me, Psalm 2, 6, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell, Psalm 2, 7, of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance. By the way, in the future, we'll see the nations streaming to Jerusalem as Jesus rules with a rod of iron. The nations is thy inheritance. The very ends of the earth is thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Turn over to Psalm 48. We're looking at this uh, idea of Zion being part of the, the holy mountain. Psalm 48 is a psalm of the sons of Korah. And this is how it reads. Psalm 48, look at verse 1. It says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Psalm 48, 2. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. If you skip down to verse 11 of the same Psalm, 48, 11, it says, let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of thy judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her, count her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces that you may tell it to the next generation. For such is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us until death. In Psalm 50, verse 2, this is a psalm of Asaph, and it says these words. 1 and 2 says, The mighty one God the Lord has spoken. Summon the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. And flip over to Psalm 84. Psalm 84. This is the final one we'll look at, although we could do more, but Psalm 84, verse 5, says these words. Psalm 84, verse 5. How blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, and in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through, 84, 6, the valley of Baca. They make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. That means pause, ponder. Think about it. It's a pause in the, in the song. Behold our shield, O God. Look upon the face of thine anointed. For, in, for a day in thy courts is better than what? A thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness better is one day in your courts than a thousand 
elsewhere. This is the place. This is the city, back to 2 Samuel 5, the city of God, God's king now establishing the picture of the coming king and kingdom. Just write, that, write this down for your notes. Hebrews 12, 22 says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. This city is our city. It's in our heart. In fact, if you've ever had a chance to go to Jerusalem, uh, to go to Israel and see Jerusalem, it's a thrilling experience. But there's going to be a new Jerusalem. There's going to be a place where righteousness dwells and where it's going to be a city of peace and a city of blessing. Peter says, this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. First Peter 2, 6. And then Revelation 14, 1 says, I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his name in the name of his father written on their foreheads. So here's David. He comes to the city. The city is not looking forward to his arrival because they know he wants to take the city. This is 2 Samuel 5, verse 8. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Therefore they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. Now, this has gotten all kinds of speculation. But here's what I think is going on. I think David is taunting the Jebusites for taunting him. I think perhaps at some point they sent a messenger or they maybe yelled down to David and his army, the blind and the lame will keep you out of here. You're nothing. You can't touch us. And I think David retorted with, oh yeah? Well, here we go. We're going to deal with the blind and the lame. And I think what he was saying was, we'll deal with the Jebusites. I think this is a taunt back to their taunt. They said, well, there's no way you can get up here. Our city's defenses are too good. The city's impressive defense made them sure that David would not be able to come in. They didn't even think they needed a military defense against him. But David suggested they go up through this water tunnel. Excavations on Mount Zion have revealed a water shaft known today as Warren Shaft that would have been difficult but not impossible to climb. It leads into the city from the Gihon Springs, down the Kidron Valley outside the city walls. Perhaps they were also uh, referring to the water supply that David was going to try to cut off from the inhabitants. This was a form of war, and David was going to take the city because this was supposed to be Israel's city from the beginning. The Jebusites shouldn't have been there anyway. And so it was time for a battle. By the way, let me just say to you that I don't think that David was saying anything derogatory about people who struggle with disabilities. After all, he invited Mephibosheth into his house, who was what? He was lame. David had the heart of Jesus in many ways, not perfectly, but Jesus came into the temple. Matthew 21, 14 says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. Jesus was healing people left and right, including the blind and the lame. This is more about a war kind of taunting back and forth that is happening here. And uh, excuse me, David suggested that they go through the water tunnel. We don't have a lot about the battle, but here's what we do have. David lived 
verse 9, in the stronghold and called it the city of David. There's an old city down below, or down below the mountain, the uh, Temple Mount today called the city of David or the old city. And David built all around it from the Milo and inward. David is now planted in the city of God. And I think our narrator wants us just to pause for a second. Just take a breath. Everybody breathe for a second. This is the city of God. So later, this model of the temple would be built by David's son and his name is Solomon. Solomon will actually come through Bathsheba and we'll get to that story about how David will blow it and commit adultery and murder and all of that. But this city is going to have this edifice. And if you just look up at the screen for a second, this is a model of the edifice, but it, it was an incredible structure. And what you're looking at mainly here is the holy place and the holy of holies, the, the inner sanctum, if you will, the place where the children of Israel would descend three times a year to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Now, we do know that worship was not perfect here. But this is where God said, you will come and meet me. This would be the center of the world. You might ask questions like, why does anybody even care about Israel today? Why do they care about Israeli-American relations or, for that matter, relationships with anybody who deals with Israel? Because this place, even though it's a small sliver of land in the Middle East, God has written his heart and his name there forever. So David built it all around. The Milu, Milo, uh, verse uh, 9, probably refers to a stone embankment that was, embankment that was built on the southeastern side of the mount to support additional buildings and a wall. Archaeologists have uncovered what they call a stepstone or terrace structure. It's about 1,500 feet long and 900 feet wide that was supporting a terrace for other structures, and they assume this was what's considered the Milo that's mentioned in verse 9. So David began to build up, build up the area. He began to prepare it, if you will, for the palace and worship spaces, verse 10. And David became greater and greater. For the Lord, the God of hosts, that refers to the heavenly powers of the, the armies of the angels at his disposal, was with him. Why did David become greater and greater? Simply because God was with him. Verse 11. Then Hiram, the king of Tyre, other kings were even taking notice. He's this king in the north now, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stone masons. And they built a house for David. And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. You ever had one of those realization moments? You ever surveyed your life? Maybe examined the blessings that God has bestowed upon you for decades with family, children, ministry. I reflect quite often on what God's done here. Tonight we're going to reflect on a decade of God's blessings. To God be the glory. He has done great things. The only reason we're here in this building is because King Hiram sent stonemasons. No, I'm just kidding. It didn't, it didn't happen. We did hire a contractor. But you know what? God has been good. And we should take moments. Some, some writers have called them snapshots of our lives. And we should count our blessings one by one to see what the Lord has done. Amen? Amen. 
Don't let life pass you by without counting your blessings. Ingratitude is not a good reflection for a culture or for God's people. Let me say that one more time. Ingratitude is not a great reflection of a culture or God's people. And I'll tell you this. Today, I look at our culture and we live in many ways in an entitled culture. Would you agree? And I think if we're gonna figure out where we need to get as a people, what needs to happen for our city, our cities that we live in to be recaptured for God, can I say to you, there's only gonna be one answer. We can talk about the mindset of people and and we can have all the political debates, but until my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, it's not gonna happen. But when it does happen, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and I will do what? I will heal their land. We need healing. But we need healing in the most important place of our lives, in our souls. Now, David had a moment of realization, and I think we all need to just pause just for a second. And I'm sure you've got some blessings to count. You may be in a tough season, but look, we've got some blessings to count. Other kings were paying attention. They come and build a house for David. Hiram, by the way, would be around even to Solomon's day. And it's probable, says one author, that the foreign influences that eventually corrupted Solomon's kingdom included influences from Tyre. Notice what happens now. So we know God's done the work. It wasn't Joab. It wasn't Abner. It wasn't anybody who was trying to help David along. But meanwhile, back at the palace, as we sum up this message, David did something that he shouldn't have done. And this shows you his humanness, and it's setting the stage for what we'll see in the coming chapters. David is not a perfect foreshadowing of the Messiah because he took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. It may imply Jebusites. After he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. The king was not to multiply wives to himself, but David did it. He disobeyed God and he would pay a very serious price for it. Now these, as the writer wants to pause and just tell us about David's family, and we'll close with this and pick it up in verse 17 next time. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab. These are two important names, Nathan and Solomon. Uh, J. Vernon McGee says these words, from the line of Nathan came Mary, the mother of Jesus. From Solomon came Joseph, Mary's husband. The Lord Jesus Christ received the bloodline and the legal title to the throne of David through Nathan and Solomon. That is the reason the information is recorded for us here, close quote. Also born to him are Ibhar, verse 15, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eli Ada, and Eli Philet. And then we'll, we'll pick this up next time. But just to set the stage, the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, and all the Philistines went up to seek David. By the way, this is not a friendly seeking. And when David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. He's about to have war. The city of peace is going to become a city of war again and again and again. Until, please hear this well, the world is going to be at war until the Prince of Peace comes. 
His name is Jesus. You are going to be at war with your maker until the Prince of Peace sits on the throne of your heart. That's where it starts. He wants to be enthroned in your heart. He wants to be the king of your family, the king of your walk, the king of your business, the king of your eyes, the king of your actions. He wants to have lordship in your life. And he says, look, make me Lord. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and I will add all these other things to you that you stress out about and worry about. Can I get a witness? Anybody a stressor out there? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Right? Throw it into the fire, man. He's on the throne. It's his kingdom. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when we decide to get serious about his kingship, everything else falls into place. Father, we pray over the city of Las Vegas right now. We pray over our city. We pray over Southern California. California is a state which is in many ways in deep trouble. And Father, we look at our nation right now. We look at the church in the nation. And Lord, in many, many ways, we have to repent of a lot of things. You say judgment begins in your house. We know you are kind and benevolent and gracious and you don't deal with us according to our sins. If you did, we wouldn't even be here. But Lord, we know that you are asking that we'd be holy as you are holy. We know that you want us to be a city set upon a hill, a light to our neighbors. Forgive us in the ways that we have failed. But Lord, thank you in the ways that you've given us success. Thank you for how this fellowship and many like it have reached out with your love on the streets and the schools, through the radio, on the mission field, through ministries, through benevolence, through acts of kindness, through ministry to children. And Lord, there are so many people in our city. There's like 160,000 people here that are not in church this morning they haven't been reached with the light of the gospel. They don't know the king. And so they don't know what to do. But Lord, help us to preach the message of hope, to be ambassadors of hope as though you were pleading through us to be representatives of the king and the kingdom. Thank you that you, you give us grace when we fail. But Lord, empower your church to rise up. It's an old hymn of the church that says, rise up, O men of God, had have done with lesser things. Oh, Lord, we need to rise up. Help us, Father. Let it start with us. If you keep your head and heart bowed, if you've not met this king, if you've wandered into this place and you don't even know if, God forbid, you died tonight, you'd be in heaven. You don't know the power of the king or the kingdom. You don't know his love or forgiveness yet, but you're here. And I believe you, you're here for a reason. Do you bow your head and heart right now? Something like this. You know you need him. Jesus, come into my life. Pray it if it's you. I believe you're the king. I believe you died on that cross for my sin. I believe you rose to defeat death, my mortal enemy. I repent of my sin and I trust you as my Lord and my Savior. I want to follow you. I want to know what it means to be a servant of the great king and his kingdom. 
Lord, for those who are praying, for prodigals who may be coming home, for Christians who just want to be a little closer. May your Holy Spirit just do a work in our hearts. May you bring times of refreshing and healing and strength. May you refocus our efforts, Lord, uh, to be ambassadors of this message of hope. And I pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.